Joshua chapter 1, just our second week in this brand new book. If you weren't here last week, I, I would ask that you get last week's message. There's several ways that you can do that. You can just get a CD or a DVD on the media table as you're leaving, or you could go to our website, Reality Carp, and uh, there you can download it for free, or you can sign up for the uh, podcast, and it'll just get sent to your iPod weekly. There's lots of ways to do it, but last week was an introduction to this book. And, and in that introduction, it helps you to understand the historical and theological context of what is happening as we study this book. So if you're going to be with us for the duration of the study of Joshua or any significant portion thereof, it is very, very important that you get last week's message if you miss that. And as I said, there are several ways to do so. Today we're going to cover verses 5 through 9, uh, but first we'll just read verses 1 through 4 that we covered last week just to refresh our memory. So Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. Verse 5 now. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Lord, this is before us such an incredible passage. It is so rich and so good and so deep and so encouraging. And Lord, I just love your heart as revealed in it, the way that you spoke to Joshua at this moment in history. You were so kind to him, so encouraging. And Lord, many of us today, we're in a similar place. There's giants in the land, there's rivers to cross, there's circumstances that are overwhelming. We thank you that you know about every one of them, and we ask that today you would speak to us, even as you spoke to Joshua. That you would remind us of your wonderful promises, Lord. That you would encourage and strengthen our hearts. That you would be the lifter of our heads, Lord. That your nearness today would be our joy and our strength that you would speak to us profoundly, Lord, that your word would be to us today as it was Joshua on this day, living and active and sharp and able to go to the very depth of who we are and do a work there. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and teach us. Father, you know that I feel 
totally inadequate to teach this text. It is so glorious, Lord. I, I'm completely humbled just to have it before me. And so, Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit about whom Jesus said is a teacher of all things. The Holy Spirit, you would come and instruct us. I humbly submit to you, Lord, my thoughts and my mouth and ask that you'd be the author of both and that you'd bless us wonderfully in your word today. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we realize as we read through our text, specifically verses 4 through 9, the thing that most prominently pops out at us is that phrase, be strong and courageous. It was repeated three times in just a span of four verses. And what that tells us is that Joshua, this great leader of Israel, must have been very afraid on this day. Of course he was. You don't say to someone who isn't afraid, be strong and courageous. You certainly don't say it three times. The Lord said it over and over and over again. Joshua, be strong and courageous, which means that this man was terrified at this moment. And why wouldn't he be? I mean, Moses is dead. You understand that Moses was the greatest leader Israel had ever known. He was the only leader, really, that Israel had ever known. For 400 years, they had been in slavery to Egypt. It was Moses that God raised up to bring them out of Egypt. Moses was the one who delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh by the power of the Lord. Moses was the one who stretched his rod over the Red Sea, and it was parted. He was the leader who led them through the wilderness and it was under his leadership that they saw God's provision for even the things that they would eat and the direction that they would go. It was under his leadership that they experienced great victories. Israel knew nothing of freedom apart from Moses. He was everything to them. And now Moses is dead and Joshua is supposed to lead. And Joshua had been the servant of Moses. And quite frankly, the last time that Joshua tried to lead, nobody followed. We talked about it last week in Numbers 13 and 14 when they first tried to enter into the land and they came to that place, Kadesh Barnea. We spoke about it at length. And Joshua came out from spying the land with Caleb and said, look, it's a good land. Surely the Lord will give it to us. We can take it, guys. But other people were saying, no, man, we can't pull it off. It's too gnarly. There's giants in the land, and we're just like little grasshoppers compared to them, and there's no way that we could do it. And Josh and Caleb say, come on, guys, we can do it. And the people didn't want to follow after Joshua. They didn't want to hear from Joshua. They went with the voice of the others. And so Joshua, the last time that he led, nobody followed. And now they've been wandering through the wilderness for some 40 years. And the only leader they had ever known, the one under whose leadership they had experienced any blessing and any victory whatsoever, is now gone. And there is a river standing before them, flowing rather before them, the River Jordan. And here they are on the east bank of the river, looking across it into the land of Canaan that they're supposed to possess. And Joshua has the weight of all this history behind him and on him. That 500 years ago in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Israel that they would possess the land. And all of those promises in those hundreds of years are culminating in this single moment with the leadership of this single man. And he knows that if they get across that river, that there are giants on the other side and there's fortified cities and there's armies who have dwelt in the land for hundreds of years. 
Joshua is utterly and absolutely terrified. Why wouldn't he be? Any one of us in the same situation would feel the same. That's not surprising to us. What is wonderful to us is the way that God deals with the man in his fear. Don't you love it? You know, I mean, God is not harsh with him. And quite frankly, really, God could have been. Because it was for fear that the children of Israel didn't enter into the promised land the first time. It was because of fear in Numbers 13 and 14. And then God brought judgment on them. And now they have their second chance and Joshua is afraid. And the Lord is just so gentle. He's just so kind. He says, Joshua, don't be afraid. Be strong and be courageous. Don't be dismayed. You know, and that's how the Lord deals with you and I. And I don't think there's a single one of us that isn't afraid from time to time. Possibly very afraid. And what I love about the Lord is he understands that. It says concerning Jesus in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. I love it that in the moment of weakness, what the Lord says is come unto me. Enter into my throne room. By the cross of Jesus Christ, the throne room was open wide. And when the Christian is afraid and overwhelmed and scared, the prescription given by God is come into my throne room. It's a throne of grace and you'll receive help in the time of need. I love that he understands us in our weakness. It says in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. I love that. The Lord knows that we're just dirt. He loves us. He made us. But he's kind and compassionate and merciful like a good father. You know what I mean? We've all seen the father. So maybe teaching his kid how to ride a bike and his kid falls down on the bike and the father goes, what's wrong with you? Come on, get back on that horse. Don't be a wimp. Don't be a wuss. Get on there, kid. What's wrong with you? Why can't you ride that thing? And we just shudder when we hear that. That is so wicked. It just crushes the spirit of a child to hear that sort of language. It's no way to speak to a child. The Lord never speaks to his children that way. When we fall down, the Lord says, it's okay. Get up. In fact, I'll lift you up. Be strong. Be courageous. I know you're just dirt. I'm not tripping on you. I love you. The Lord is compassionate like a perfect father. And he's given us his spirit. And it says that concerning his spirit in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, that he has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. That by the very fact that we are new creations in Christ, our new creation has at its very core in the spirit of God, power, love, and and self-discipline. And these things are, are the opposite of fear. Now, from time to time, we all get afraid. I understand that. And it's not a sin necessarily to be afraid. But I do think that it's a sin when we let fear take a hold of us. Because what we're supposed to do as Christians, the New Testament says, is take our thoughts captive to the obedience of the cross of Christ. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God won the victory over sin, 
and death and the enemy. Death, where is your sting? It says in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and so when we get those thoughts that make us afraid and those wonderings and those worries, and, and when our mind just turns over and over with those things, we all experience that. But, but the pivotal moment is what you do with that. And we're supposed to take it captive to the obedience of who Christ is and his promises and not let that fear begin to consume us. Because when that fear starts to consume us, it has a destructive effect in our lives. The first thing that fear does is it causes us to think irrationally. When we let it take hold of the core of our being and we let it really start to work us over, we get irrational in that fear. That's what happened to the children of Israel when 40 years prior they were supposed to enter in at Kadesh Barnea, again, Numbers 13 and 14. They were afraid, and in their fear they got irrational. They begin to say, wait a minute, we're just like little grasshoppers in the eyes of those giants, and there's no way that we could ever do it, and we were better off as slaves in Egypt. I mean, that is utterly irrational what they said in Numbers 14. But you see, they were being driven by their fear now instead of by the word of God and the promises of God. The second thing that's so destructive about fear when we let it take hold of us is that fear nullifies faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. Faith is trusting in who God is and what God has said and then acting upon that. But you see, fear paralyzes the child of God. Fear paralyzes the Christian. We're to be moving ahead, conquering the land, taking the land, moving in the promises of God. Yes, it's frightening. Yes, it's gnarly and there's unknowns, but that's why faith is required. And the righteous shall walk by faith, not by sight, it says three times in the New Testament. But when we let fear take hold and we act on fear instead of who God is and what God has said, then faith is nullified. And the Christian becomes paralyzed. And you know this truth, that you can't stand still in your Christianity. You're either moving ahead or you're getting pulled backwards by the current of the world and the schemes of the enemy and the lust of the flesh. The third thing that fear does when we let it take hold of us is it causes us to become self-centered. It really does. It ultimately causes you to get all eyes focused on you. And you get so consumed with self. And being self-centered is the opposite of the, core, of the core of Christianity, which is selflessness. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel when they let their fear rule them and they didn't enter into the promised land the first time is they became irrational, they lacked faith, and they became self-centered. They said, let's kill Moses and raise up a new leader for us that will take us back to Egypt. It was utter insanity. But that's exactly what happens when fear takes hold and we stop, operate, we stop operating according to faith. And what's wonderful for the Christian is that we don't have to have our own strength. This is good news. Because the world teaches you, you had better be strong. And you had better muster up some strength and just buck up and deal with it. Where the Bible says in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It doesn't have to be our strength. It's the strength of the Lord, and that is an unlimited resource. And then the Bible says that when we are weakest, his strength is made perfect. That we rejoice even in our weakness knowing that his strength is made perfect. And then it says in 2 Timothy 2.1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, when we recognize that our standing before God is in grace, as Romans 5.1 says, that gives us tremendous confidence knowing that we are just accepted 
into God's heart because of the work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to labor for it. We don't have to strive. We don't have to work. We don't have to perform like some little doggy jumping through a hoop. Our standing is in grace because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the Lord deals with us as with sons and has compassion on us knowing that we're just dirt. And that brings tremendous confidence to the life of the Christian. And then we're able to lean on his strength and not our own. And so in that vein, the Lord says to Joshua three times, be strong and courageous. Only be very strong and courageous, he says. Now, courage, you know what it means, very simply defined, is the ability to do something that frightens you. The ability to do something that frightens you or, or having strength in the face of pain or grief. There's a time in every one of our lives where we need courage. And the Lord promises that he'll supply strength. He'll supply courage. We'll just trust in him and lean on him. And I want to make this very practical and very applicable to your lives right now. I want each one of you to think about and, and ponder before the Holy Spirit, what are the giants in the land for you? You remember that we spoke about last week that the land of Canaan is analogous to the Christian life, really the victorious Christian life. And there's victory and there's blessings and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But to be sure, there were giants in the land of Canaan that they would have to deal with. What are the giants in your Christian life right now? The ones that intimidate you, the ones that scare you, the ones that overwhelm you. I want you to enumerate them in your mind and then I want you to bring them before the throne of grace where we can receive help in the time of need. I want you to very cognizantly today say, Lord, this scares me. Lord, this circumstance overwhelms me. Lord, this seems like too much for me. And I want you to bring it before the Lord and say, Daddy, would you deal with it? Daddy? Yeah, Daddy. That's how the Bible says we're to address the Lord. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit of God in us causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic for Papa or Daddy. He's just that loving to you and I. We're to come before him and say, Daddy, this scares me. This overwhelms me a little bit. Papa, would you handle this for me? It's too much for me. The Lord's always going to do that. Now understand, understand. He might not just snatch the giant away and make it disappear, though we wish he would. God doesn't always work that way. He didn't do that in the land of Canaan. He didn't just make the giants disappear. He strengthened his people to be able to face them and get the victory over them. So the guarantee is that the Lord will give you strength. He does not always deliver us out of our circumstances, but he always delivers us through them. Amen? So don't expect him to just, you know, make the giants disappear, but do expect God to give you strength when you bring those giants before his throne of grace to see you all the way through. The other question I'd like to ask you is what rivers are raging before you that are keeping you from the promises of God? Because they were on the east bank of the Jordan River now. And the promises were on the west bank at this time. They had to enter into the land of Canaan. And next week we'll see how they crossed that Jordan River. But before they got into the promises and the blessings, and yes, even the battles, there was this river raging before them. What river is separating you from the promises and blessings of God? What powerful flow is keeping you from all that God has for you? 
It may be that it's some relationship that has gotten out of control and you know it's not right and it doesn't glorify God and it's not going the right direction, but it's such a powerful flow in your life. The Lord wants to bring you through it today into His promises and peace. It may be that it's some sin that you're caught up in and it's just like you're just getting ripped downstream and you're so terrified of that thing. The Lord wants to bring you out of it and through it and into His promises and His peace. It may be that it is a raging river of bitterness in your life. And it has got you so cut off from the power and the promises and the blessings of the Lord because you are so caught up on that east bank. Man, the Lord wants to deliver you from that today if you'll just ask Him. If you'll just surrender and repent and bring it before Him. What river is flowing so powerfully it's got you cut off from the promises of God? God wants you to cross through it this year. What giants are in the land? God wants to give you the victory over those things. Now, notice what he gives to Joshua in the midst of Joshua's fear. He gives him three things. First of all, he gives him the promise of the land. Then he gives him the promise of his presence. And then the promise that he will keep his word. We already talked about the promise of the land last week. And he reassures them of the promise right here. I love that whenever we need it, the Lord will reassure us of his promises. That's why he's given us a written word. You know, it's super cool that he wrote the word down for us. He didn't have to. You know, Abraham didn't have the written word. But he gave us the written word that anytime we need to be reminded of the promises of God, we can open it up. And here's a whole book of them. And not only that, but he's given us his Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that the Lord taught us. And so if you'll read your Bible, in the moment of need, in the dire moment, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance that very promise of God that you could apply to your life and lean on to get you through that moment. If you never read your Bible, then the Holy Spirit can't bring it to remembrance. You can only remember something you once knew. If you read your Bible, you may feel like you're forgetting it, but you just hide it in your heart. You just soak it in. At the most incredible moment, you will find the Holy Spirit of God bringing it to remembrance, reminding you of the promises and encouraging you that way, just as he reminded Joshua here of the promise of the land, even though it was 500 years old. The second thing he gives Joshua in the midst of his fear is the promise of his presence. We see that in verse 5 and in verse 9. In verse 5 he says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Again, in verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's wonderful that he said, Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you, because that was very tangible for Joshua. Because Joshua, for decades, had wandered through the wilderness with Moses. He had been the servant of Moses, and he had seen firsthand God's presence in the life of Moses. And so that was very tangible for him when God said, just like I was with Mo, I will be with you. And then the Holy Spirit makes it tangible for you and I. And in Hebrews chapter 13, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit takes the same thing that God said to Joshua here and applies it to the life of the Christian, you and I. And says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you, says the Lord. And so it becomes very tangible for us. It's a New Testament promise that we can lean on. I mean, when the angel announced the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1.23, what was the name that was announced? 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is the very essence of the incarnation that God is with us. That is a basic promise for the Christian life. Even as Jesus sent them out into the mission field in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all the nations, the last thing he said to them in verse 20 of the book of Matthew was, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Turn to Romans chapter 8 real quick. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. But to go to Romans chapter 8 very quickly. There we'll read a phenomenal passage of Scripture, no doubt familiar to most of you. Doesn't take any commentary on my part. We'll just read it. It's so powerful in what it says. Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 31. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who's the one who's trying to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No. For just as it is written... For thy sake we are all being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. But in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What more do you need? That is an absolute promise of God, and God has proved himself throughout history to be faithful. And the Apostle Paul, who was smarter than you, said, I am convinced of these things, that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, are you convinced of these things? Are you convinced of the truth and the authority and the validity of the word of God? Because if you're not, you have nothing to stand on. When God sent Joshua into the land, he sent him in with his word. And his word was to be his guide. And he would draw encouragement and strength and direction and lean on the promises of the word of God that had now been put down in written form for him by Moses in the form of the first five books of the Bible. And Joshua accepted it as the very word of God. Do you accept it as the very word of God? Because it is. And if it is, there is no end to the strength that is available to you. There is no end to the encouragement as we see there that God promises us his presence always. Back in Joshua now. The third thing that God promised Joshua in his moment of fear was that God would keep his word. He said, I will keep my word. I will bring you into the land just as I have said. And if you obey my word, you will have success. 
So we can believe God's word, we can lean on God's word, we can see those promises, and we can know that God will always keep his word. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Doesn't it say in Philippians 1, verse 6, that God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in us? And Joshua testified about this at the end of his life. God said, I will be faithful to my every word. I will fulfill everything I said I would. And on Joshua's deathbed, he testifies about it. Turn back to Joshua 23. Go to Joshua 23, the end of the book, second to last chapter. And here we have the testimony of Joshua, this great leader of Israel at the end of his life. Joshua 23, verse 14. He says, now behold, he's speaking to all of Israel. He says, today I'm going the way of all the earth. That means that he's going to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. That's the testimony of his life. Man, he was terrified at the beginning of this journey. When he was on the east bank of the Jordan, there was fear in his heart. But God gave him a promise, and God said, I will be faithful to my character and my word. And now Joshua goes in, and for decades he battles. And at the end of his life, when he's dying, he's able to stand before the whole congregation and say, you guys know this is true. That God has fulfilled every single good thing he ever said he would do. He did not fail on a single one of them. That's an eyewitness account right there. God's going to be faithful to you just like he was to Joshua. God has no favorites. He's going to be faithful to you in the very same way. What is interesting to me, though, is that he didn't give Joshua any explanations as to how he would accomplish those things. Did you notice that? He didn't say, okay, Joshua, now I'm, I, I'm going to accomplish these things and, and you're going to accomplish these things with my help and here's how we'll do it. A, B, C, D, and subpoint one, two, and three. He never says that. He never gives him any information about the how. He just says go. And the reason for that is, is because God's people are to live on God's promises, not on explanations. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. And I think it's very condescending of us to ask the Lord for explanations. And yet we do it frequently. God, why? I need to know why. God, why? God, how could you do this to me? God, I need to know. Before I go, I need to know. God, show me. Listen, first of all, who are we that we should speak to the Lord in that way? He doesn't have to answer to men. Secondly, he has designed the Christian life and he has ordained it to be such that we should walk by faith and not by sight. And if he gave you the plan, point A, B, and C, and D, you would walk by sight and not by faith. And you know what that would mean? That would mean you're not leaning on the Lord. And you know what that would mean because we have wicked hearts is that we would soon depart from the Lord. If the Lord gave you the 10-year plan today, you would stop praying tomorrow, which is why he doesn't. But you can be absolutely sure 
that when he's leading you, if you'll step out in faith, though there be ambiguity and uncertainty and giants and even overwhelming odds, if you will just step out in faith, you can absolutely trust that at the appropriate moment, the Lord will give you the next step. He's never let anybody down in history. He's not going to let you down. He's absolutely faithful in that way. He's absolutely faithful. Hebrews 10.23 says so. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is faithful, and we need to lean on that fact. Now, the Lord told Joshua to be courageous. And each one of us in our lives is going to have to be courageous. There's going to be trials and tribulations. Jesus said that there would be. And for any Christian to have real courage, two things have to take place. For any Christian to have two, uh, real courage, two things have to take place. It took place in the life of Joshua. Number one, all outside sufficiencies and dependencies have to die. All the other things that we lean on draw comfort and resource from, have got to go. That is why the book of Joshua starts with the phrase, now it came about after the death of Moses that the Lord spoke to Joshua and said, arise and cross the Jordan. There is no question that Joshua leaned heavily upon Moses. Why wouldn't he lean heavily upon Moses? He was the only leader Israel had ever known up until that point. He was a great leader of Israel. Any victory that Joshua had ever tasted was under the leadership of Moses. Any freedom he had ever seen was under Moses' leadership. Any blessings that they had ever experienced in the wilderness wandering was under the leadership of Moses. Of course he leaned on Moses. But for him to now have courage in his day, and the day of trial and testing, Mo had to go. Moses had to die that Joshua might have courage. And so it is in the life of every Christian. If we are going to have true courage and take the land of Canaan, so to speak, the fullness of what God has for us, our other sufficiencies and dependencies are going to have to pass away. Let me ask you a third question now today. I've already asked you, what are the giants in the land you want God to deal with? What is the fast-flowing river before you that's cutting you off from the promises of God? The third question I'll ask you is this. What in your life needs to die that you might have true courage in the Lord? Perhaps it's a relationship that's become a crutch for you. It's not of the Lord, or you're just leaning on it more than the Lord. You know, it's not an infrequent thing that a person becomes an idol in the heart of another person. Perhaps it's some financial reality that you become blessed with and you don't need to pray anymore, give us this day our daily bread. And so you don't pray that. And there's come a, a departure in your heart from really trusting in the Lord. What needs to die in your life? Perhaps it's some church affiliation or some faith in a movement or some silly pastor. What is it that needs to die in your heart today that you might fully lean on the Lord? Realize that Jesus Christ, who loves you, will go to great lengths to deal with those other sufficiencies and dependencies. Because ultimately, they become idols in our lives if they're not dealt with. 
Tomorrow, in your one-year Bible reading, you'll read the last half of Matthew chapter 14. And there you'll read the story about when Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side. It'll be the first verse that you read tomorrow morning in your one-year Bible. It says that Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. That word made, anikazo in the Greek, is a military term. It means he compelled them. He absolutely forced them. They had no choice. He made them get in the boat and to go to the other side. Jesus didn't go with them. Now, certainly they wanted the Lord to be with him. You know, he just fed the 5,000, and he's the Lord after all. And Lord, won't you come with us? No, get in, go. Well, fine. They get into the boat, and they go to the other side. Now, before they get to the other side, what happens? You're familiar with the story. A storm comes. Now, what do you think about this storm? Do you think this storm was just a coincidence, a dink? Like the Lord didn't know. The Lord goes, oy vey, a storm. I didn't know. storm was not a coincidence. The storm was ordained by God. The book of Colossians says that Christ, is, Christ Jesus created all things. He made this storm, and then he made the disciples get into the boat, and he sent them into the storm. Why? Because there were some self-sufficiencies he needed to deal with in them. And so they get out there, and they get in the storm, and the storm is severe. And it says in the text that the boat was subject to the waves, which means literally in the Greek it was under the waves. The boat was sinking. And it says that Jesus did finally come to them, but not until the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They got in the boat before it was dark. That means they'd been in the boat for at least nine hours. Nine hours in a storm where they are sinking. Why? Why nine hours? Do you think the Lord was late? Oh, sorry, boys. I was up on the mountain doing some stuff. The Lord wasn't late. The Lord came at the perfect time. The Lord came when they finally got to the end of themselves. There's a tremendous amount of self-sufficiency in them. And he hit them at the very core of it. They were fishermen. Every night of their God-given life, they'd been out on that lake fishing. And they'd been in many storms before. This one was different. It was God-ordained. And at the perfect moment when they're at the very end of themselves and they've exhausted every other resource and they've had to surrender every other sufficiency and dependency, Jesus Christ comes walking on the water. The very circumstances that threatened their existence a moment before, the Lord walks on it and he says, be still, and he calms the waves. At that moment, the boys saw the Lord like they had never seen him before. It says at that moment that they worshiped him. They had a brand new revelation of who he was. More than ever now, they understood God. They didn't understand him in the midst of the miracles. They didn't understand him fully just from the teachings. It wasn't until they got rid of all other sufficiencies and dependencies that they really saw Jesus. The Lord is going to send you into storms. And when he does it, you need to know that he does not do it to sink your ship. He does it to settle your soul. To settle your soul once and for all in the realization that he is God and he is trustworthy and every other idol shall be cast down. If we're going to have true courage in this Christian life, we've got to get rid of every other sufficiency and dependency. The second thing that has to function in the life of the believer to have true courage is this. 
The Word of God must become supreme. The Word of God must become supreme. This is what God did for Joshua. He took away Moses, but he gave him the Word. And he said, you shall be very careful to read the Word, to talk about the Word, and to observe the Word. He let Joshua know that there was a change now in things. You see, Abraham spoke directly to the Lord. Moses spoke directly to the Lord face to face. But now there's a historical shift in the book of Joshua. The first five books being completed, Moses penning them, the Holy Spirit authoring them. God says concerning those first five books, these you shall observe, these you shall read, these you shall speak about, these you shall follow, these shall be your guide. There's a shift from God speaking directly to Moses to now a dependency on the written word of God. If you're going to have true courage in this Christian life and experience victory and all the fullness of what God has for you in the land of Canaan, so to speak, there has to come a moment in your life where the word of God becomes supreme where you subscribe to the sufficiency of the Word of God. That it's not the Word of God plus something else. You know, that's very prevalent in the church today. It's the Word of God plus psychology. It's the Word of God plus various philosophies. It's the Word of God plus other self-help manuals. No, it is not. It is the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Sola Scriptura. It is the Bible that is sufficient for every need of humanity in Christ Jesus. You will either accept that or reject that. You will never know the fullness of God until you accept that. You will never have true courage to take the land and get the victory over the giants and cross the river until you lay hold of the sufficiency of the Word of God until it takes supremacy in your heart. That is to say, until that moment where it replaces all other voices and opinions and philosophies, that the Word of God becomes exalted above them all. There's got to come a moment in your life where the authority and the power and the glory and the depth of the Word of God are realized by you you will not experience the fullness of what God has for you before that moment because it is found in the pages of this book. He has written it down for us. Jesus Christ himself is the word of God. When we feast on this, we feast on his very person and his presence. We will never know true courage or experience true victory or the fullness of what God has for us until we lay hold of that truth. This is a fourth question I will ask you in this sermon. Where do you stand with regards to the word of God? Where do you stand with regards to the Word of God? If you do not subscribe to the sufficiency of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God and its infallibility in its original manuscripts, if you reject any of those things, you had better have some concrete evidence. I mean, it had better not be some silly theory that you heard from some professor. It had better not be some modern idea. If you're going to reject those things and thereby reject the Word of God, you had better have some concrete evidence because you are putting yourself in juxtaposition to Joshua and to David and to Solomon and to Peter and to Paul and to Jesus Christ himself who said that his word would never pass away even though heaven and earth would. 
If you reject the sufficiency or authority or inerrancy or infallibility of the Word of God, you had better have some positive proof or you are a fool. You had be, better be able to show the Bible to be in error or insufficient or non-authoritative for doctrine and practice. Where are you with regards to the Word of God? And so the Lord told Joshua what he was to do. Instruct him about real courage. He gave him his promise of the land, his promise of his presence, a promise he would keep his word. And now he tells Joshua exactly what he is to do. Let's read it again in verses 7 and 8. These are two of the most wonderful verses in the whole Bible. If I were you, I would commit verse 8 to memory. I think it's a theme verse for our church this year. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. The Lord told Joshua exactly what to do. He was to know God's word, to talk about God's word, to meditate on God's word, and to obey God's word. Now, the same things are true for you and I if we're going to conquer the land, remembering the land of Canaan, though it's a literal, physical, historical land, it is analogous to the victorious Christian life. And if we're going to experience a victorious Christian life, we must know God's word, talk about God's word, meditate on it, and do it. Did you know that the New Testament says that it is a shame for the Christian not to know God's word? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, work hard to present yourself to God as a workman who need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. The Bible says that we ought to work hard in knowing the word of God. And in fact, we ought to be defined as workmen who deal with the Bible and who handle it accurately. And if we're not, that there's some shame involved in it. Of course there's shame in that. I was teaching in a missions conference yesterday down in San Diego and I, I uh, spoke to some adults and then I also spoke to youth and the youth was the most fun part. We had a question and answer time with them and, and people were asking me questions about creation and the validity of the Bible and stuff like that and this one sweet little girl, she asked this question, she said, if God is real and God is so wonderful like you say, then how come he doesn't make himself seem better than the things of the world? How come he doesn't make himself seem better than money and possessions and all these other things? I said to her, sweetheart, it's a very brave question and very honest question. Thank you for answering that. But I'm going to be very honest in answering that. The reason that those things seem so attractive to us is because of the absolute sinfulness of our hearts and no other reason. God is infinitely more wonderful than anything this world has to offer. And if we don't see that, it's because our perspective is skewed. 
If we don't see that, it's because of the sinfulness of our hearts, not some deficiency in God. In the same way, the Bible declares itself to be more desirable than gold and silver. Keep your finger right here. Go to Psalm 19, if you would, please, very quickly. I mean, boogie over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, start reading in verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. Now here's what it says. All those refer to the word of God. Now it says in verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The Bible declares that the word of God is more desirable than gold and much fine gold, and that it is sweeter than honey and honeycomb. Let me just say in all humility, as one of you to you, that if there is in your Christian heart no desire for the word of God, that is sin. It's because your heart is distracted with self and the material things of the world. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but Mary chose the good part, that which shall not be taken away from her. All she was doing was being seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. If there's no room in your heart for the word of God, no hunger in your heart for the word of God, my brother, my sister, whom I love, I humble myself before you, but you are in sin. There is shame in that, the Bible says. Work hard to present yourself to God, a workman who need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. Does anybody take exception with the fact that if there is no desire for the word of God in Christian heart, that the heart is off? Don't get condemned. Don't leave. I'm never coming back to this church. <laughs> Repent. It's much easier than getting mad. It's much easier than continuing in your sin. Repent. At the end of the service today, come get on your face. Rub your nose in the carpet and say, God, forgive me. My heart is worried and bothered about so many things. It is so crowded with commerce that there's no place in it for your word. And yet I know that the Bible is true and it says it's more desirable than gold and much fine gold, sweeter than honey and honeycomb. Joshua was to know God's word. Secondly, Joshua was to talk about God's word. This is why I love that we're reading the one-year Bible together because it then makes it e easy for us to talk about the Word, right? Because we're all in the same place. You know what I mean? Like today, if you already did your one-year Bible reading, you read Exodus 1 through 3 and the first part of Matthew 14. I already read it, and so I know that there we are introduced to Moses and the whole story of Moses and being put in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter finding him and him growing up in Pharaoh's house and then him killing the Egyptian and then him going into the wilderness and marrying Zephyr and all those things. See, we could talk about it if we know it. But the Bible says that we ought to know the Word of God and talk about the Word. We talk about all sorts of silly things. God, forgive me. I talk about all sorts of horrific stuff. 
The Christian is at some point to talk about the Word of God. And then thirdly, Joshua was to meditate on God's Word. Now, meditating on God's Word is a step beyond just knowing it or talking about it. It implies reasoning about the Word and deducing things from it for our lives. It implies thinking deeply and carefully about it. Strip away all those stupid connotations of Eastern mysticism and meditation in that way. We're not talking about that stupid stuff. We're just talking about thinking deeply on the Word of God. Just letting it dwell richly in your heart and your mind. Contemplating it. Examining your life in light of it. Giving it priority and place. If to read the Word of God is to eat it, so to speak, you know, reading attentively is like eating the Word of God. The meditation is like digesting the Word of God. And it's not until we digest something that it becomes a part of us. You've got to meditate on and digest the Word of God, and then it becomes a part of you. And then that wonderful truth takes place that what goes in eventually comes out. Man, I want more of Christ coming out of me, less of me. I want more of his word flowing forth from my life. So I've got to put more of it in and meditate on it and let it become part of me and deep in me and let it take root in the very core of where I think and how I make decisions and how I express myself. You see, here's the problem in Christianity today is that very few Christians practice meditating on the word. Most Christians today are, are, think that the successful Christian life is just going to church, paying a little bit of attention to the sermon, but not too much, having a few Christian friends, and then going on with their life, business as usual. And they think that that is successful Christianity. That is not successful Christianity. What happens in that mindset when people fail to meditate upon the Word of God is they inevitably begin to look like the world around them because we are bombarded with the message of the world 24-7 from every direction. And if you're not combating that with the Word of God and the truth of God and the precepts of God and the promises of God, then those things are going in and you're digesting those things and those things are taking root in your life and they begin to author your thoughts and they influence your mind instead of the Word of God. And now we just look like the world around us. And we say to people, hey, you ought to become a Christian. And they say, why? Oh, because Jesus is awesome. And they say, how would I know? You don't look like him. I don't know what he looks like, but if he looks like you, I'm disappointed. Because so much of the modern church just looks like the world around them. Because we haven't meditated on, we haven't digested the word of God. It hasn't gone into the very core of who we are and influenced that. And so we don't look like Christ. We look like the world, and we sound like idiots when we say get saved. There's no authority in that message at that point. What is missing in Christianity today, the reason why we make such a small impact in society, is because very few Christians are willing to slow down and spend the time to take deep, genuine, persistent meditation on the Word of God. God told Joshua, you need to know the word. You need to talk about the word. You need to meditate on the word. And the last thing he said to him, and the last thing I'll say to you, is that Joshua was to obey 
the word. I mean, can, we, can you indulge me? Can we read verses 7 and 8 one more time? Just look how profoundly the Lord says that. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right or the left. Don't veer off the path even a little bit so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. God told Joshua, you need to be very careful to obey the word. And there's this incredible principle in the Bible that God always blesses obedience. Very few of us believe that. If we really believed it, we would obey the Lord more. Because we're greedy for God's blessings. We want his blessings. A sure way to experience maximum blessings of God is to obey his word. That's what it says in Psalm chapter 1. Obey his word. But the converse of that is when we don't obey his word, destruction comes into our lives. God has ordained it to be such. It has always been such. Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 and 59 says this. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues, and miserable and chronic sickness. Now, we are living in the age of grace. And when we disobey God, he does not necessarily always bring destruction and sickness into our life. But it's very clear in the New Testament that some sickness was caused by sin. And furthermore, doesn't it say in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived, that which you sow you shall also reap. Sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And if we sow obedience, we will reap blessings. If we sow disobedience, if we ignore what the word says and we go in the own way, we will reap the consequences of that. There's no question about it. Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, that way is death. God said, Joshua, it's very simple. If you know the word and you talk about the word and you meditate on it and you obey it, you will be prosperous and successful. Not in the worldly sense, okay? I'm not talking about God's going to give you more money. He might. But it's talking about every spiritual blessing which is ours in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1.3. If we obey him, he will bless us. I think, I think, I think more than we're even willing to be blessed. I think God is willing to bless his people to the point where it's almost embarrassing for us. If we'll just heed him, if we'll just obey him. And the very last thing I'll say, you know, preachers always lie. When they say in closing, it means there's 10 more minutes. But the second time they tell the truth, this is really the last thing I'll say is this. It's just very short, one sentence. Their victory in Canaan was absolutely and utterly dependent on their obedience to the word, period. And throughout the rest of Israel's history, when they disobeyed, they lost the land. When they obeyed, they conquered. And so it is with you and I. Our victory in this Christian life is dependent on our obedience. Not because anything is earned. 
It's already accomplished by the Lord, by the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember he said in the past tense, I have already given you the land. He's already given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's in the past tense, that verb is in Ephesians 1.3. It's not performance oriented. He's already given it to us, but we do need to lay hold of it by faith. We do need to walk in it. Everywhere that you walk shall be your territory, said to Joshua. And when they obeyed man, they were blessed. And when they didn't, they experienced defeat. So it is in our lives. If your Christian life seems to be more defeat than victory, I'll bet everything that I have that there's a deficiency in your diet concerning the word of God. If you find yourself sinning way more than you think you ought, I will wager in all confidence that there's a deficiency in your life concerning digesting and doing the word of God. It's very simple. Obey the Lord, he will bless your socks off. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for your word. We're very challenged today, Lord, by it and yet very encouraged about your faithfulness. We believe you, Lord. We believe all these promises that you are good and faithful and true. We ask that today, Lord, you'd help our unbelief. If there be any way that we turn to the right or the left or we've let go of the sufficiency of your word or we're just not trusting you for a difficulty in our life or we're overwhelmed and taken by fear because of the giants in the rivers, Lord, strengthen and encourage us today. We believe, but help our unbelief. Thank you that you're merciful with us. Anything that we're leaning on other than you, help us to repent of today, Lord. Guys, I just want you to do business with the Lord. The carpets are here for you to just come and get on your face before him. Communion is here to remember his faithfulness, and the prayer team is here to help you. Let's do business with this awesome God.